Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. Hello. <laughs> Just me being very brief and to the point. You know, that's what I'm all about. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're right. Uh, and also joining us, at least we hope so. We're aiming some technical difficulties, but we're hoping that we get through all this. Uh, David Moore. Hi, David. Hello, 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 hello. Yeah, there he is. Uh, so uh, did everybody have a good weekend? David, you and I were out in Los Angeles uh, for the Cowboys win over the Rams. I got to tell you, I, I, I picked the Cowboys to win that game, but I didn't think it would look that easy. Uh, that's for sure. To, to me, this was fascinating, and I think it was the Cowboys' most impressive win of these four in this four-game winning streak. And to me, it was because, you know, the, the defense continued uh, it, it, its dominant performance here, and, and there's no question that this is the strength of the team, and it really should put them in any game they play and give them a chance to win it. But – not only did it reinforce this team now has a defensive identity, any sort of faux quarterback controversy that was swirling out there, uh, I think was laid to rest with a performance by Cooper Rush where the offense had 10 first downs on the road, 10 completions, and none of those completions to a running back or tight end, and despite those offensive limitations, Dallas really controlled the game from start to finish. So it, it was really a, a, a stark, I think, portrait of just what this team is and how it will win going forward. And and uh, I think you can now see once Dak Prescott does return, whenever that will be, um, that his ability to make plays and, and convert on third down can actually uh, – take this team up a notch in, in the second half of the season. Yeah. You know, the funny thing about that uh, is that it, I, I think always of Jimmy Johnson, what he always preached about turnovers uh, and, and specifically talking about his offense, don't turn the ball over. Yeah. over. And obviously we, we know that's a bad thing, but when you watch Cooper rush, win these games and, and that was obviously his, the worst of his four starts um it just kind of reinforces that, doesn't it? It's like, okay, this was bad, and they uh, they needed more help from the quarterback position. He's he's not his pocket awareness isn't as good as it should be. He got just hammered a couple of times on blindside hits. Um, you know, he's he's not finding other people on the field. He's not able to drive the ball down the field. We saw there was at least one or two plays where uh, balls were were tipped away on, on passes that you know needed a little more oomph on them. Uh, he didn't get a lot of help, uh, always, uh, you know, CD lamb dropped a ball, surprise, surprise. Uh, Michael Gallup dropped a ball, a, a wide open, uh, pass. Both of those plays were on third downs, could have sustained drives and maybe made something really happen. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I gotta tell you, I still getting emails from people saying they still love Cooper rush. I, I, I try not to take these people too seriously when they say that, but having said all that, doesn't it just reinforce once again that when Dak comes back, they need to keep the same formula that they've been using all along? Yes, and I think certainly Dak has seen that. Uh, we've talked a little bit about this before. I, I think this was such uh, this has been such an offensive-driven team for so long that Dak 
had to push had to constantly push and and uh, uh, do some things in order for this team to have a chance to win because of its defensive shortcomings. That is no longer the case. They can play a different game. They can actually go back and play the style that they did um, when Dak Prescott came into this league as a rookie quarterback. And they won all those games in a row, which is uh, just lean on the run game, uh, you know, control the clock and take your shots when you have them. The difference being he's much better equipped to hit those big plays now than he was as in his rookie season. So, you know, I, I think the pendulum is always swinging. Um, it, this was Ezekiel Elliott's team the first couple of years Dak Prescott was in this league. Then the pendulum swung, and it was certainly Dak Prescott's team and their ability to win games depended on his arm and his ability to make plays and throw for 300-plus yards every game. Uh, now it's come back, and it's much more balanced. Uh, th- this is the best balanced team Dak Prescott has ever been on with the Cowboys. And for him to come back and play the same way he did for most of the last two seasons, uh, three seasons, uh, which is throw the ball you know, 35 to 40 times a game, that is not in the Cowboys' best interest. And D- Dak's a sharp guy, and he's a team guy. He's seen that. Um, but there's still going to be moments, right? I mean, there, some of this is um, like on that third and 12 a, a couple of weeks ago against uh, New York when they did the pitch play to Ezekiel Elliott. Um, that was Cooper Rush noticing the front and, uh, you know, making the call for a run play. Dak has to go to the line. And ra- I think in the past, so often he has said, OK, our best chance to make a first down on this is for me to throw. He needs to get away from that mentality and go, well, no, this this is where we're going to run here. We can pick this up on the ground. So uh, there will be subtle moments in the game where Dak is going to have to change. But uh, overall, this this is all good for the Cowboys going forward. I don't see any downside to it. Yeah, now the pendulum has swung back. Now it's Tony Pollard's team. Yeah. Although yeah. I will also I, say I, I, Ezekiel Elliott, I thought, looked as good as he had at any point this season. That was the, the way those two ran against the Rams when the Rams knew – they were going, Dallas was going to run. And when the Rams had shut down Dallas's passing attack, that was a pretty encouraging sign because everything the Rams did was geared to stop the run with nothing go- working in the passing game. And they were still able to run when they needed to. Yeah, you know, I, I have a problem here. I, you know, I, I, there's been no question, and I'd be the first to, to agree with all the fans who complain that Kellen Moore has has not used Tony Pollard nearly as much as he should. There's no question about that. That has been the number one indictment of this offense, I think, over the last several years. Uh, but having said that, you know, you, you see him go off for that 57-yard touchdown run, and, you know, a terrific run, a classic Tony Pollard kind of thing. And, and it's easy to say that then, that why isn't this guy getting more carries and why isn't uh, Zeke getting fewer carries until you see your quarterback get blown up because Tony Pollard did not pick up the blitz, uh, which is not the first or second or tenth time that he has failed to do that. So uh, in, in those kind of situations and in situations where you really need some tough yards, I don't have any problem at all with these guys splitting carries. If that means – you know, if, if if Tony was getting 60% of the carries and Zeke's getting 40, I don't probably have a problem with that. Uh, but 
I don't think that people should be com- complaining about the running game too much at this point. No, they shouldn't. And, and you're right on that blitz uh, pickup that wasn't uh, that was Tony Pollard's mistake, where um, uh, Cooper Rush got blasted blindside, actually fumbled it, and uh, you know lost the ball twice. But they there's some luck involved too, right? No turnovers there. Both of those bounces came back on the Cowboys when he was knocked loose from the ball. Um, but the other thing is, I mean, you know, Tony Pollard has the three biggest plays from scrimmage for the Cowboys through the first five games uh, this season. And, and, and you ride that and you get him the ball, but people who say you should turn this thing over to Tony Pollard conveniently ignore, I think, the two games this year where he had like six carries for eight yards. Um, he's not always hitting it big, you know. Uh, that doesn't mean he shouldn't get touches, but – there are reasons in certain games where he gets fewer touches. Um, but I think I just don't know. He's the kind of guy you just want to turn around and stick the ball in his stomach 25 times. He's never a game. been a lead guy. He wasn't a lead guy in college. I mean, why would he be a lead no. guy now? So yeah, that, that's, that's the thing that I want to know. I, and I've never talked to any of his coaches at Memphis, but you know, this guy's an NFL talent. Why wasn't he a full-time running back at Memphis? And so, uh, th- there has to be reasons why this has happened in his career. And, and, uh, and so I, I, I don't think he's the kind of guy you do that with. It's a little bit like Eric Metcalf, like, you know, like I remember when he was at Texas and, and, uh, uh, and Fred Eggers was trying to, to put the ball in his stomach, you know, 20 times a game and it, and it just didn't work. He's not that kind of running back and you have to be able to move him around. I, I think my complaint has always been, they need to throw in the ball more often, you know, especially we, we, we heard that was going to happen because, you know, they were uh, because they, they lost two receivers out of their top four, you know, going into this season. So, well, one of the remedies was going to be throw the ball to Tony Pollard more. Well, that hasn't happened. Well, a little know? more incrementally. Uh, I mean, Zeke is down and he's up, but it's not the big jump you would expect. I think he has like 13 throws or something to him this year where last year through this point it was eight. So it's, it's incremental improvement, but, but you're right. And and as we just said, no running backs had a reception in this past game. So uh, none of them picked up ground there, but yeah, I I think, I think you're seeing this year. I don't know that anyone should have a complaint with how Tony Pollard and uh, Ezekiel Elliott are being used in tandem. And, and, And very quickly, this is not to take away from Pollard, but every big run he's had this year, who was the guy who ran it just before it happened? It was Ezekiel Elliott. It's that, it's that hammer of Elliott running straight at you, uh, the defense having to adjust to bring down Elliott in a certain way and then go with that quick hitter with Pollard uh, to, to hit that offense right when they're kind of dug in the trenches a little bit. And they've had a, exhibited a real good feel for that this season, I would say, as an offense. Yeah, absolutely. All right, David, let's talk about the the injury uh, situation and and potential uh, impact on this game against this week against the Eagles. So, uh, first of all, let's just start with Dak. Uh, You know, the the players aren't on the field until Wednesday. We're taping this on Tuesday. So uh, we we don't know yet if uh, if Dak is going to be able to uh, get back. Uh, Mike McCarthy said it once again after the game on Sunday, and I believe he said yesterday on Monday as well that he needs a full week of practice before we think he, we can send him out there. Yeah, I, I think this will be – Dak is going to the doctors on Tuesday to get uh, the medical clearance or, or a clearer picture of where he stands medically on that, at which time Dallas will put together the plan for this week on how he will go about practice. Um 
I, I would anticipate he would be limited on Wednesday and Thursday this week. But but the key is going to be how much does he actually throw in practice and what's you know what what is he able to do? If he doesn't throw it all on Wednesday, um, they may try to keep the charade up. But he's there's no chance he comes back against Philadelphia. My anticipation of how this will play out is he will be able to throw enough in practice on Wednesday and Thursday where the team will go, well, hey, this is uh, we're seeing some good things here. We can't rule him out yet. And and I think they will uh, play this strategically and go down to the wire on Sunday and talk about his uh, pregame routine Sunday night, much as they did last year uh, against Minnesota. And then he was not active for that game. And then what did we find out afterwards? Oh, he was never going to be active for that game. So yeah. I, I would anticipate that is how they'll play it this week. I, I think there will be, as long as he is able to do some throws in practice starting on Wednesday, uh, they will play this out on the will he, won't he all week. All right. So uh, if we, uh, if, and I, and I don't think Dak's going to play this week either. I, I, I think, I think the Cowboys. I think you should expect Cooper Rush. And it's more, we always talked about Philadelphia being where you start the clock on Dak's return, that did not mean he was going to come back for this game. This is when you start the clock. It's a possibility. I still think next week's game is a is a better possibility for Dak's return rather than Philadelphia. All right, let's go real, real quickly go over a couple of other uh, injury-type situations. Of course, Micah Parsons uh, had a groin injury. Uh, he, he did play in the game. He was obviously limping around. I, you know, David, I'm no doctor, nor do I play one on TV, but uh, – that doesn't seem like a good thing that a guy is of that caliber is limping around. Are they not risking aggravating that injury? And then, then you got real problems with him going forward. A lingering groin injury is not something you want uh, to manage over the course of a season, is it? Um, they Their anticipation for him is that he will play against Philadelphia, that he will practice in some capacity this week. My estimation would be that he would be extremely limited in practice this week uh, with the idea of not putting any more stress on that uh, to have him ready for the game. But you're right. You have to be very careful with this. Uh, you don't want uh, – they, they got off to a 4 and one start. They had the latitude to lose this game if it's going to mean healing him and having him for the final 11 versus 12 games. That's what they will do. Uh, but the anticipation at this point is that it's not serious enough to keep him out of the game against Philadelphia. What about Dalton Schultz? That's going to be interesting. Uh, he had the uh, he's already missed time with the, uh, the the knee sprain. He came back. He agitated, uh, aggravated that injury. Did not return uh, against the Rams. Uh, I think it's more problematic whether or not he's able to play in this game coming up. And uh, also very quickly, Demarcus Lawrence, much like Micah Parsons, missed some time in the second half against the Rams. Uh, that was a rib injury, but they do not anticipate that will keep him out of the game against the Eagles. All right. That's going to do it for our Cowboys segment of the podcast. We're going to move over on now into uh, baseball. Evan had a uh, little column today about uh, the fact that Ray Davis needs to get out his checkbook uh, again. And, and Ray Davis has said he would do that. He spent uh, oh, a half billion dollars, a little more than that last winter. And he probably needs to do that again. Doesn't he, Evan? Well, I, Kevin, the way I look at it is forget the long range commitments here. You know, the, the improvement in payroll was $48 million last year, and it got the Rangers to 
161 million, according to Spotrack, which is the, the database that we use. Uh, it's still below the league minimum, which was one, or the league average, which was 163 last year. And if you take the average of the, the eight remaining playoff teams, it's about $40 million less than those teams. So my statement to Ray Davis would be, yeah, you took a big step last year, but you basically got to take, at least in terms of annual average annual value, you've got to take the same exact step this year. Those may be shorter-term deals for pitchers, but you've got to be willing to add, by my count, between 40 and and $60 million in payroll. Now, obviously, there are teams that do it well without that kind of money. Tampa Bay has, has done it forever. Tampa Bay's never had a, a payroll over $100 million, uh, much less $200 million. Uh, and they're a perennial playoff team. The uh, The Guardians are still in it, and they, they're they not uh, over $100 million either. Uh, but what's the what's – the, What's the deal with that, Evan? What do you have to be if you're not spending a lot of money? Uh, smart. Smart. Well, I mean, you've got to you've got to develop, Kevin, and or you've got to have you've got to have some proprietary edges in terms of what you do in scouting and acquisitions. The Rays have done a great job of acquiring relievers, some of them from the Rangers. Um, both those teams have done it without significant payrolls. Uh, I'd point to, from the Rangers' perspective, I'd point to the other AL West team that is in the playoffs right now, Seattle, who made the playoffs with a $128 million payroll this year, uh, which only ranked 21st. That's going to go up in 2023. They added Robbie Ray last year. They added uh, Luis Castillo at the trade deadline, and then gave him an extension, which is an average of $23 million a year, and they signed their franchise-developed player, Julio Rodriguez, to a 10-year deal that's worth you know upwards of $240 million. So their payroll is going to go up too. The Mariners are a good test case for they developed some nice young players, Julio Rodriguez among them, um, and they, as I said, they've started to spend some money. The Mariners also went 21 years without making the playoffs. And my point is the Rangers are on the cusp of getting their farm system productive again. It may have already started to produce, but the pitchers are still short. And there's only one way to get this right, and that is go out and add pitchers at nothing other than the cost of money. Let your pitchers internally develop like Jack Leiter, Owen White, Kumar Rocker, Mason Englert, um, Cole Wynn. There's a long list of guys who are who will potentially be productive here. But if the Rangers want to get to a point where they're going to contend and create a sustainable window to contend, what they need to do this year is address the pitching side in much the same fashion that they addressed the hitting side last year. Yeah, we we've talked about that. That uh, not only do they have to re-sign Martin Perez, uh, they probably need to sign two more pitchers besides that. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, and, yeah. And that, to me, you got everybody who pitched this year, other than John Gray and Martin Perez, is competing for the fifth spot in next year, season's rotation. 
I would, uh, yeah, you could look at it that way. Um, yeah, you need to go out and sign at least two pitchers. And if one of those guys combines, contends for the fifth spot, that's great. In a perfect world, those guys would be contending for the sixth spot because you're going to need depth options as the season goes on. And Dane Dunning looks a lot better as a depth option capable of winning you a game with about a 50-50 chance than he does as a member of the starting rotation on a day-in and day-out basis right now. Um, here's the deal, though. You know, if you want to go get a guy at the front of the rotation, that's either Carlos Rodon or Jacob deGrom. And that's going to cost you over $30 million a year. DeGrom may be on a shorter-term deal than Rodone, but it's going to cost you over $30 million a deal uh, a year. Then if you want to get another guy who is, what's the right word to say this, um, walk-averse, because that was such a problem for the Rangers, you're talking about maybe somebody like Michael Walker or Jamison Tyone or Chris Bassett. Those are guys who are going to cost you about $15 million a year. So right there is $45 million between two pitchers, and that doesn't add the extra 10 or so on top of what you paid Perez last year that you're going to have to pay him to retain him. So it still comes down to this, Kevin, 50 to $60 million in terms of increased payroll. Uh, yeah, there's no question about that. I, you know, I, I have to tell you, I, I don't like the idea of them going out for a, a Jacob deGrom. He's 34 years old. Um, uh, he's had an injury history when he's been healthy. He's been obviously great. He is a great pitcher. Um, I just don't know if, if they're going to take, I, I don't care how much money Ray Davis, you know, spends. I don't care, you know, how much he leaves his kids. Uh, what I care about is that I don't want them to say that, well, we, we spent all our money on Jacob DeGrom. You know, they, they need, uh, besides Martin, they need two more starters. And, and I do trust their uh, uh, opinion of starting pitching. You know, they, they've shown over the last five or six years, we, we have a little confidence in their ability to take a guy and uh, tune him up a little bit and run him out there, and he's been very good. Uh, their, their, their percentage has been, has been very good in these last few years. So I, I, I do appreciate their ability to do that. And I think it's more important really almost for the quantity than it is the quality. I mean, I, I'm not saying I don't want the Rangers to, to go out and find quality pitchers. I'm saying that they need to make sure they get three, including Martin. Uh, as long as they get three, I'm good. They've been very good at finding Martin Perez caliber pitchers, right? Guys who are capable of being all stars um, and who will eat up innings. They need to go out and find somebody to place ahead of Martin and John Gray reliable in the rotation. That is correct. All right, so let's let's shift over in this uh, Rangers segment now. I want to talk about the, the managerial search uh, because uh, uh, Bob Nightingale, national baseball writer, uh, has mentioned that Bruce Bochy would be at the the top of Chicago, the Chicago White Sox uh, wish list. He's kind of just said that, that it was Bruce. Boshi, uh, um, Ron Washington, and Mike Schilt, that those are the three guys who would be at the top of the list. So, uh, first all of all, those, all those three guys are veteran managers who have gone to the playoffs with a previous team. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and, uh, and let's talk about that first, because that's, that's the issue here for me is that, uh, uh since, you know, uh, the, the Rangers have been to the World Series. Well, let's just talk about this. Since since Buck Showalter, John Daniels hired, Ron Washington, Jeff Bannister, and Chris Woodward, three managers. 
none of those three guys had ever been a manager in the in the big leagues before. Uh, so obviously it worked great with Ron Washington. Didn't work so great with with the Jeff Bannister. Uh, didn't work at all really with Chris Woodward. Um, I, that's kind of it. Feels unfair to say that about uh, Woodward because uh, he didn't have a lot to work with. Uh, he certainly didn't have what Ron Washington had. I would say he didn't have what Jeff Bannister had either. But it felt like the message was not getting through either. And I think that that is my my point about these managers now. You can run uh, a young, inexperienced guy out there because he is, you know, uh, all into analytics and he's receptive to that. Uh, it, it, it felt a little bit with the Rangers and with John Daniels in particular after his dealings with Buck Showalter, that, you know what, I'm not so comfortable with a guy who, who is so heavy-handed here and uh, maybe wants to run everything. I'd rather have a manager here who could uh, at least see things our way a little bit. Now, I'm not saying that was the, the thinking with, with Ron so much when, when Wash was hired because you know, he was a guy who I think he was seen as a guy who could get along with the veteran players on this team. And that's certainly what he did. He set the lineup in April. It was the same lineup all year long. You know, the, the team ran it, itself in a lot of ways. And and I, and I don't mean that to denigrate Wash's role in any sense. I think that he was probably the perfect manager for the Rangers at the time. Listen, when they hired Ron Washington, they wanted they wanted somebody who would get players fired up who they thought would bring energy to the clubhouse. And that's exactly what they got with Ron Washington. It also was a different era. Analytics had started to seep into the game, but were not nearly as pervasive as they are now. And so I think you're looking, if you're looking at first time managers now, you're looking at guys who are much more collaborative. And I think to some extent with Wash, the right word that you're looking for is collaborative. They wanted somebody who wasn't going to be um, averse to information that they could provide, to help that they could provide. And, and I think the Rangers felt like Buck wanted the clubhouse to be his little fiefdom. And that's just not how baseball works anymore. Um, and, and by the way, just on Buck, a perfect Buck exit the other day, uh, having them check Joe Musgrove's ear to see if he had uh, some kind of substance going there. So, and you, I think, you know, I'm not the world's biggest buck advocate um, based on my personal relationship covering him. But let me say this, this is, this is one of those modern day things. Thanks to the social, uh, social media and the internet, all that stuff is out there that Musgrove's RPMs are way up that boy, his ears look shiny. All that stuff is in game. It's out there. If Buck goes out there to check it and his ears don't turn out to have anything on them, then he looks like a fool. And it's easy for us to write columns and offer sound bites on this is Buck, right? Right. If he doesn't go out there and Musgrove continues to shove against the Mets and beats them 6 nothing as they did, then we all decide to gang up and say, why didn't Buck Showalter go out <laughs> and find that cheater? So he was in a little bit damned if you do, damned if you don't moment. I will say this, to Buck's defense, what he said after the game, he'll take all the responsibility. He feels like he's going to do what's best for the New York Mets. Was it some gamesmanship? Yes. But was it potentially necessary given the situation and the um, environment in which we are? Possibly. 
But that's that's far too much buck for this podcast. <laughs> let, let's oh, I think we had to bring it in. I say this. I, I, I got along better with Buck than you did, but you had to deal with him every day. But I'll say this, that it, it was a no-win situation for him. Correct. It was. I mean, and people were just lying in the weeds waiting to say whatever was the wrong take on, on his part. But I, I yeah. want to go back to veteran managers here because you mentioned Bochi and you mentioned the White Sox and you mentioned um, Bob Nightingale. And listen, here here's how I think the Rangers situation plays out. I think Bruce Bochi is far and away the leading candidate here because he is experienced. Because in San Francisco, while he was viewed as somewhat old school as a manager, he worked with a very analytic, savvy clubhouse, uh, front office, welcomed information, but also took it. And when he had questions, he raised questions and issues and had the gravitas to basically be given latitude to say, okay, you manage the game how you need to manage it, Bruce. He's won three World Series. He is the guy for a team that expects to contend next year. He is the guy. But if you're Bruce Bochy, you're saying, this is probably my last stop in managing. I'm going to make sure I've got the best situation for me. And you look at these two situations, the White Sox clearly underachieved last year. They were a playoff team in 2021. This is a team that's built to win right now. The Rangers have to make significant improvements to win right now. So if you're Bochy, you look at it and you say, well, you could look at it and say, what's my best chance to win in 23? If that's the White Sox, maybe that's why the White Sox would have a leg up on the Rangers. But if you're also looking to stay there three, four, or five years, you're looking at what's the better farm system, what's the balance of talent. The Rangers are a top 10 farm system. so And the White Sox are considered one of, if not the worst right now in terms of farm talent. So that's another wrinkle to it. But I think the reason that this has not moved faster where Bruce Bochy is concerned in the Rangers is because it was always going to move as fast as Bruce Bochy wanted it to. And Bruce Bochy is going to figure out what is best for him among all the potential situations. And I'll leave open the possibility that, hey, what if the Yankees go out in the first round? What if the Astros go out in the first round? I don't think Dusty should be given the exit in Houston by any stretch of the imagination, but we're hearing all kinds of strange things coming out of Houston regarding Dusty and James Click and and the front office and Jim Crane. So there's a lot for Bruce to, to consider, I think. If Dusty Baker gets canned in Houston, I, I, would he be a candidate here? Well, I, listen, I, I was going to bring this up. If Dusty, if if for some reason Bruce Bochy does not end up with the Rangers, okay, does that put somebody like Ron Washington in the mix for the Rangers? And my initial thought would be they've been there and they've done that. But you also got a new general manager, and it wouldn't be John Daniels going back to Ron Washington. It wouldn't be necessarily a repeat. So could a guy like Ron Washington, who's 71, get a shot with the Rangers? Wouldn't rule it out. I don't know if it's if if, if that's quite the um, if that's quite the newer school type version that the Rangers would look for. But Dusty Baker, Ron Washington, Bruce Bochy, they all kind of come from the same mold. They're, they, they cut their teeth in a different generation, and they've all had success. So, And they all run a great clubhouse, and that's a really important thing for this team. So 
if by some chance Bochi is not the guy here, I would certainly say that if, if Baker's available, if Wash wants to manage again, um, I would think that the Rangers are potential fits for those guys. All right, I'm just going to say this, going to let you just go on and on and on. Uh, the Rangers have to hire a veteran manager, in my estimation. They've done this now. They've been there. I, I, I don't believe this is selling in the clubhouse. I, I believe that it is difficult. I think what we're seeing now uh, is that uh, depending on the mix you have in your clubhouse, it's difficult to sell a young manager with no experience uh, because players are, are most players are pushing back against these this torrent of numbers that are being shoved at them. But and, I, and I think you've got to have a manager who can say, uh, let me just tell this really quick story. So, so you never tell quick stories, Kevin. I do too. Bobby Witt is, this is 1987. I believe it was Bobby Witt sit down, not performing well. Uh, he, he goes down. Fergie Jenkins talks to him. They, he's there. I guess I can't think Fergie was a roving instructor at the time. Tells him something. Bobby comes back up and has the best, uh, uh, you know, half season, whatever it was of his career, certainly with the Rangers. He was terrific. So Bobby Valentine is in his office one day. He's talking to us. This is all just off the record. And he, and he just finally says, what is it that Fergie was telling him that we weren't telling him? Bobby just hated this, this idea that every, you know, that Fergie was getting all the credit. We're turning Bobby Witt into the pitcher everybody thought he was going to be. And and no one wanted to just say this right out to Bobby, but the deal was Fergie Jenkins was telling him that. It was a Hall of Famer telling him these things instead of you guys. And then and I love Tom House, but instead of Tom House, who was doing things at that time that were very radical and and, and it was difficult for people to take. Now, all the things that Tom House talked about back then, about back then are things that people do now. And Tom's a genius, you know. Uh, it was just hard for him to sell that back then to, to baseball players. But Fergie Jenkins could sell that to Bobby Webb because of who he was. It's always it's always in the message. And you never you never say never. Um, and I think this is why the Rangers would do some due diligence on some first-year guys. Kevin Cash was a first-year manager when Tampa Bay hired him. Alex Cora was a first-year manager when the Red Sox hired him. There are guys out there who, who are – you know, the outliers. But I do think the Rangers need to leave as little as possible to chance. You don't want to put together a $200 million payroll and then entrust it to somebody that you say, well, there's going to be some bumps in, uh, along the way because it's a growing process. I, I think yeah. they would like to be past that. And that's why, again, for me, it comes down to credentials and Bochi's got them. Absolutely. All right. Well, it was a big win, a uh, big weekend in college football as well. Certainly was out at the old state fair. That's the first one of those I've missed. Oh, I don't know, a couple of decades at least. Uh, but Texas put it on Oklahoma, forty-nine to nothing. Uh, that is the biggest win by Texas at state fair over Oklahoma in its history. The first time that uh, uh, Texas had uh, shut out Oklahoma since nineteen sixty-five. Uh, and uh, one of the worst losses ever in Oklahoma history. Um, I got to tell you, I thought Texas would win that game uh, just because of what we'd seen from the Sooners the previous two weeks. I don't know why you would think they would go in and beat Texas after they, uh, after TCU scored 55 points against them the week before. Although weird things do happen out at the State Fair. I'll be the first to say that. 
usually on the midway. Yeah, but, I was going to uh, say it's not necessarily in the stadium where yeah, the uh, weird things. That's right. Some, sometimes in there, but I, I'll say this: uh, I, I I think I saw two things here, and, and Brad Townsend alluded to this, but I saw two things in that game uh, that were groundbreaking to me. One, we've just very rarely seen Oklahoma be bad in the Cotton Bowl. You know, we've seen Texas be bad plenty of times. It's just very rare for, for the Sooners to come in and play so poorly. They almost looked like they had quit. Uh, they couldn't stop the run. They couldn't stop the pass. They couldn't stop anything in that game. It was a pitiful performance by the defense. And then, you know, the offense at least had the had the, the problem of, well, they're missing their starting quarterback, although that happens in lots of places. Uh, it was a real issue for the Sooners as well uh, from that standpoint. But the flip side of that was uh, what Quinn Ewers has been able to do for the Texas program at this point. Uh, I, I can't, uh, you, you, you just cannot underestimate or overestimate what he has done so far. This is a guy that didn't play his senior year of high school football. He took two snaps at, at Ohio State, came back, played a quarter against uh, Alabama, and then goes out against Oklahoma and just lights it up. Uh, his ability to to do these things, to play with such poise, let's just get past his physical uh, talent, which is obvious. He's a big kid, great arm. The ball is just beautiful coming out of his hand. Uh, it's the poise that he plays with. Uh, nothing seems to rattle him. Even his teammates talk about that, about how calm he is on the field. And for someone who to do that, with the lack of experience that he has is just phenomenal. I just, I got to tell you, I've seen a lot of Texas quarterbacks. I, I go back all the way to, I don't know, Marty Akins is the last one. I really, I remember a little bit of watching uh, James street play, of course, for uh, Texas back in the sixties and early seventies. But this guy feels like to me, the most talented of all of those guys. And that's saying, you know, it may not be saying a lot across the broad spectrum because they've had a lot of very mediocre quarterbacks over that time, but they have had Vince Young and Colt McCoy. Uh, and I, and I think that Quinn yours is more talented than both of those guys. Now, will he end up doing what Vince Young did, which was produce a national championship? Well, I'm not about to say that I'm just talking about on sheer talent alone and the potential of what they bring to the table. Uh, Quinn yours, is number one, uh, and it's it's phenomenal to see that happen because Oklahoma's had some great quarterbacks. We just we just saw a run of several of them in a row. Guys who were you know, two of them were the first pick of the draft. Uh, now uh, it hasn't worked out so great for Baker Mayfield in the NFL. Uh, Kyler Murray's still hanging in there and doing a pretty good job for the Cardinals. Uh, and and Jalen Hurts has really taken a big step up uh, for the Eagles this year. But uh, I, I'm not even really talking about that and what they do on the pro level. I'm talking about what they do on the college level. And Texas just hasn't had a string of quarterbacks to do that like Oklahoma has. And now you see what Quinn Ewers has done. It's, it's hard when you get in one of these situations, and Texas has certainly proven that, where you're down, it's hard to get back up against a team that recruits the same players that you're re- recruiting. You know, that's there's I once looked this up over the history of the AP poll that it's there's never been there's only been a handful of times, three or four times that A&M, Texas and Oklahoma have all finished in the top 10 at the same time. Uh, it's because they're all recruiting the same players. And so it's difficult to, to stay up uh, when you do that. And so I, I really think this is going to be an interesting time going forward uh, in this series between Texas and Oklahoma and also what Texas does now. Uh, there's a, there's a lot going on in, in, uh, in Texas this year. 
Uh, and most of it has to do with quarterbacks. We've seen what, what uh, uh, Sonny Dykes has been able to do with Max Duggan at, uh, at TCU. He was a guy who was always a good runner, but, n- but not a great passer, going to turn the ball over too much. Now, all of a sudden, Max is a, 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 a real dual threat, and he has made TCU into a, a viable contender uh, at this point. I, I think it's going to be really hard for, for the Big 12 to get a team in the CFP just because we've seen a resurgence of the Pac-12. UCLA's playing well. You know, USC is playing well. They're Lincoln Riley. Uh, Clemson is back, it looks like. Ohio State's playing great. Uh, the, the committee's going to have to figure out some way to get Alabama back into the mix, you know, but I, and I think that'll probably happen once Bryce Young returns uh, and obviously Georgia as well. So th- there's a lot of contenders. I really don't feel like the big it's going to be in the big 12s uh, ballpark this year. I don't, I don't feel like that's going to happen. But the quarterbacks have made a difference uh, at Texas and, and also at TCU. Well, I feel like, some of the throws that Ewers made against Oklahoma were really remarkable, um, squeezing the ball between defenders. But I, I look at it from from two different angles, Kevin, right? The, the first is just what you said, that we've never seen a Texas quarterback do this kind of thing and certainly never seen one do it against Oklahoma. Um, and, and so that goes in the, the asset column, certainly a big asset column. On the other side... I don't know that I've seen an Oklahoma team look as confused and um, out of position, not prepared uh, ever before. And they were beaten and beaten early. Uh, Maybe that was still some residue from the TCU game and not being able to get up uh, for Texas. Maybe it was just that that uh, that Will Venables still has some growing to do as a coach. But uh, I think that Ewers – offers more ability than Texas has had at the quarterback position, like you said, in a long, long time, maybe ever. I also feel like what we've seen of him so far hasn't been, it hasn't been a long enough sample size against what I would consider, with the exception of the the little bit he played against Alabama, to be really viable. We've got to see him against more, against more quality teams for a longer period of time. Well, and you're right. There's no question about that. I'm just talking about talent. I'm not, there's a difference between what Vince Young was able to do over two seasons as a quarterback at Texas, obviously, and taking them to the national championship and winning that against a great USC team. One of the, one of the great, you know, college football games of all time. And certainly one of the great championship games ever. Uh, I'm not, I'm not about to, to say that, oh, he's he's you know he's going to be better than Vince because of that. I'm just saying. I'm just talking about purely on talent level. What you watch a guy do, what you how you watch a guy spin a ball, how you watch him be able to pick these things up. I mean, the interception he threw against uh, against Oklahoma was ridiculous. Uh, he's throwing it off his back foot. It came off. It came out of his hand bad. It's way up in the air. It's like a punt, and it's an you you can't do that. He cost his team points down there, but it, he also. He, he, he is very uh, Patrick Mahomes-like. Uh, he can throw off his back foot. He can drop his arm slot. He can do all those kind of things. Now, he's not as athletic as Patrick is. He's not, he doesn't get out and run as well, although he can. He can kind of get himself in positions where he can move a little bit uh, to make a throw when he has to. Uh, but that I'm going to tell you something. That quarter against Alabama 
was unbelievable. 134 yards passing in one quarter. Uh, he he had Alabama on its heels in that game. So everything this kid has done in the short amount of time he's been there has been terrific. And I think that's what we usually see, and, and we've talked about this before, real greatness exposes itself early. Uh, if, if you're going to be a, a truly transcendent player, we're going to see that from you at a very early stage. And that's what we're seeing from Quinn Ewers at this point. Well, well and so, how, how much I, live I, game action has he had the last two years before this season? He didn't play well, a senior a, year, they, right? And then he didn't play at Ohio yeah. State. So basically he hadn't played in two years. So all you're missing here is the live game action and the experience. And you're seeing that the talent, even despite two years of really not playing in games, hasn't lost ground. In fact, it stands out. So that's a very promising sign for him and you. Uh, yeah, sure. it is. It's just happening. If you're Texas, you have to be very enthused about what you've seen um, from Quinn Ewers. There's no doubt about that. Well, what's going to happen here is it, it goes back to the, the whole Chris Sims, Major Applewhite argument, you know, and between fans and the fans love Major and because of the things he could do and, and, uh, uh, and, uh, but the, the team, and obviously it was clear that Mac Brown wanted Chris Sims to win that job. And it wasn't just be, and, and everybody got caught up in this whole thing of, oh, he's just doing this because of Phil Sims, because Phil Sims is making, you know, what was Phil Sims going to do for Texas program? Nothing, you know? So it had nothing to do with his old man. It had everything to do with the fact that if, when we go out and get a kid like this, we have to play him because. We're attracting other recruits, other high-profile recruits see this kid and they go, I want to go here now. But if he's not going to play, why would I go there? And that's what happened. Uh, Chris Sims drew more big-time recruits to the Texas program, certainly drew more than than Major Applewhite did. And that's nothing against Major. He did a terrific job. But Major was the quintessential Texas quarterback. For for decades, they kept uh, signing – 5'11", six-foot quarterbacks who were very limited physically and athletically uh, in trying to make quarterbacks out of them. And, and why Texas is, was stuck in that rut for so many years, I couldn't tell you. But they, they finally got out of that now. And it's making a difference. They are re- attracting big recruits. And I got to tell you, I'm wondering now what's going to happen when Arch Manning shows up. Because if, if, if Quinn Ewers continues to trend in this direction, I don't know why you would want to screw with that. Now, uh, certainly, it would be a question of would he want to leave after two years? You know, once he gets two years under his belt, is he gone at that point? And then I'm not saying you turn down Arch Manning. I'm saying that I don't, <laughs> I don't know what Steve Sarkeesian is going to do when they're both there at the same time because I have a really hard time believing they'll ever be on the campus, both of them at the same time. So, well, and that's, that's the deal you 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 fight now, right? I mean, uh, listen, you're going to be only. As good as you, despite recruiting and despite recruiting classes and all that, you're really going to be only as good as you are year to year based on opportunities for guys to play. And if guys don't get those opportunities, they're going to go elsewhere. You know, I, I, I my experience with this on the quarterback front was was Georgia when Jacob Eason got hurt, and he was supposed to be a, a superstar quarterback. He was a five star recruit from from the Seattle area. He got hurt. Jacob from uh, Jake Fromm stepped in. Didn't lose any games. And so what happened with Josh Fields? Josh Fields went to Ohio State. And now Josh Fields is a first-rounder. So if you don't get opportunities to play, guys are going to move on. And they're going to look for places where they can go and play. And that's that's why on one front, 
you know, Oklahoma is in a really bad spot right now. On another front, they could only be a year away from from getting every transfer that that wants to jump into a, a program. And they got to do that. But the other thing that's going to have to happen here is Brent Venables, who is a defensive coordinator, is going to have to make that defense work. He's got to fix that. It, they Oklahoma may have gone the wrong direction here by by hiring a defensive coordinator. Uh, they, you know, they, they let Josh Heupel. He was already at Tennessee. But they could have money whipped him, I think. Uh, and, you know, Josh Heupel was a, an Oklahoma legend. And uh, he has certainly turned Tennessee into a big-time factor in the SEC. And Oklahoma, meanwhile, is going the, the opposite direction. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We're, uh, we'll be back next week with more, and we'll see what the Cowboys do with the Eagles and, uh, and what's happening in college football and whether the Rangers uh, ever get this thing going in the right direction again. From everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you.